Welcome to Meet the Authors at the Apple Store Regent Street in London. Please welcome guest moderator Paul Crowton. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for coming out and a welcome, as you just heard, to the Apple Store in Regent Street. Um, we've got a very interesting lunch hour lined up for you um, with two uh, rather interesting chaps, so let's get them out pretty sharpish. Uh, as you know, they wrote a book, um, a book called Freakonomics, which was about the economics of drug dealers and what baby names can tell us around the world. And it was published a little under a decade ago. It sold millions of copies and prompted a sequel, Super Freakonomics, which also sold millions of copies. There is now a Freakonomics website, a radio show, a blog, a film, and in case that wasn't enough, there's also some trousers. Earliest month came the third book, Think Like a Freak. To find out a little more about that and the guys who wrote it, Please welcome onto the stage the guys who wrote it, Levitt and Dubner. Welcome. Greetings. Oh, greetings. Sorry. Hello. <laughs> Meet your audience. Um, now, all your books, this is your third book, as I said, all your books have been about ideas, and there are plenty of ideas in this book as well. But this book is a little bit different than the previous two. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, so um, hello. Thank you for coming in, Dubner Levitt, just for clarity. Um, so yeah, so we wrote these first two books that were both kind of accidents. The first one, you know, we, uh, we were not partners before I was a journalist. Levitt's an economist. We were <clears throat> accidentally hurled together and wrote this first book that turned out to be very fun for us to write. And then people had fun reading it, so that was great. And we thought a long time about writing a second one, a little indecisive, took a long time, decided we'll try it, we did it. And then for a third one, we didn't wanna just do the same thing again and again, so we had a few ideas that were dreadful, uh, one idea that was somewhat less dreadful on first appearance, but turned out to be dreadful. And then this idea, which was basically, could we take uh, what we've learned to do while working together and writing these books and kind of uh, write it down as a set of rules, almost a how-to or a self-help book. So the idea is not, it's not really a how-to or self-help book, uh, but it's if you want to think a little bit more creatively or productively or maybe rationally, we came up with a set of principles or almost parables that we believe and then illustrated them with stories. So in one way, it's not very different in that it's still got a bunch of stories about the kind of things that we enjoy talking about, which are mostly, you know, offbeat topics, um, but it is very different in that rather than just being descriptive, saying this is the way the world is, it's a little bit prescriptive, telling people how they can think their way through the world. Now, I was interested in that because, as you say, the previous two books weren't self-helpy at all. Um, Whereas this one... Unless you wanted to know how to run a crack gang or cheat at sumo wrestling, let's say. Or yeah. indeed be a terrorist. And, and yeah, that yeah. was an interesting yeah, right, bit, which yeah. we might come to a bit later on. Um, so, so tell us a little bit in a, in a self-help way what, what thinking like a freak is all about. What does that mean? What's a freak? And why is it useful to be one? So I, I, I think our definition of a freak is, uh, is a, a strange mix of economics and fun and uh, oddness and it's a way of looking at the world with um, sort of without fear and with the hope that you can uh, shed some light on, on uh, different kinds of questions. So um, that being said, you know, the way we came up with this book is we thought, well, 
we have this magic formula, this way we think that other people don't think, and, and could we uh, package that magic formula? And the sad part was when we really got down to it and, um, and thought hard about what we did, it turned out to be really simple stuff that's ex post very obvious and uh, almost anticlimactic in some ways. And, uh, and so the book kind of is a, a set of um, you know, pretty straightforward things. So the first thing we focus on is um, being willing to admit that I don't know. And we talk about how hard it is for people in general, pundits, people in business. Nobody, if you think about it, nobody ever admits they have no idea what's going on. But Dubner and I ne hardly ever know what's going on. And, like uh, right now, in particular. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, we talk about what the value is of that and how important, and that without admitting you know nothing, you can't begin to get the feedback and do the experimentation that will allow you to someday know something. And so in the short run, there might be a great benefit to faking your way through and pretending that you, you know what's going on. But in the long run, it can't be true that, that just you know, faking through your life will be a good idea. And so you know, that, that's where the book, the book starts. You want to take it from there? Uh, yeah. There, you know, there, so like Levitt said, acknowledging what you don't know is not a hugely important fairly obvious in retrospect step that very few people are willing to do politicians chief among them and you know the media like you know for the book we go on tv and radio and you're asked a question the construct of it is set up in a way that there's no way that most sane people would ever just say you know that's a really good question but i'd be totally lying if i gave you an answer because it's a hard question that i don't know the answer to so it's not that people are bad for not saying they don't know. It's just that a lot of our important institutions that we wish people had a greater appetite for inquiry, like the media, like politics, it, it's really discouraged. So start with I don't know. We talk about the value of thinking like a child, which again, um, in some ways is very obvious. Children do a lot of things that if you're willing to look at it in a certain way are very valuable, even for adults. Their level of intensity and curiosity, their willing, willingness to ask questions that are not sophisticated questions or important sounding questions, but all of that kind of gets conditioned out of us by the time we get older. So we argue that it would be great to smuggle some of those childhood, childlike instincts across the border into adulthood. Um, and also we talk about... Can I just, I'm going to just interrupt there because I'm interested in those two and we'll get to, I think you've got another yep. couple, but I have a, a question about us saying I don't know. We put great store in our politicians and our leaders knowing more than we do. <laughs> uh, Mistake number one. Quite. Isn't it perhaps a fault of our, ourselves, our society, whatever else, that we, if people say to us, well, I don't know, then we, we think that's a failing. And so that, yeah. that you, you, you're not allowed to say, I don't know. Right. So, so I how think do we yeah. deal with that within a, in a wider society? So, I mean, I think that's actually an open question. So we looked at the, the presidential debates in the United States going back for 40 years, and we looked for instances in which one of the candidates, when asked a question, admitted that they did not know. And we literally could not find a single example of that in, in 40 years of debates. So in a strange way, we don't actually know what would happen if a candidate, a politician, routinely just said, I have no idea, and I'm going to go and try and find out what the answer is. I mean, it might actually be refreshing, and people might get, you know, be happy about it. But I think, in general, the incentives are such that in an it's hard when you're in an adversarial world, it's hard to say, I don't know. So, like, in a, in a, in a lawsuit or in an election where there are two candidates, the, um, the negativity, the, the, the opponent seizes on supposed weakness and then trumpets that around. And so... 
in that setting, I think, is the hardest to admit you don't know something. But on the other hand, in a business setting where, in principle, you're all part of the same team, you might imagine that saying, I don't know, would be routine. Okay? But it really isn't. So I've, I've been in probably a thousand business meetings over the last 10 years, and I think I could count on one hand the number of times that someone in front of their boss, when asked a question they could possibly know the answer to, has simply said, I don't know. Um, but, you know, there are other settings where people do say, I don't know, like in the, in the U.S. military, uh, it is very standard. You know, you, there are like four sets of things you can say in response to a question. And one of them is, I don't know, but I will find out the answer. And that's an acceptable thing to do in the U.S. military. I guess that's the, that's the second part of it. Saying I don't know is fine. It's how you find the answer and how rapidly you can respond to that. Yeah, we're, we're not encouraging that people walk around declaring how little they know and just quit and give up trying to learn. That's, you know, it's really meant to be the first step. But the, so the, the practical part is right. Say, you know, I don't know the answer to that question, so what do I do to figure it out? How do I get the data? Like Levitt said, maybe it's an experiment or something to get feedback that's going to let you do it. But the other part is almost a philosophical part, which is pretending you know and, and we're not you know saying pretending you know facts and figures that's not that big a deal first of all thanks to you know the digital revolution anybody can fact check you within 30 seconds and you'll be found out to be a liar so that's actually great that you can't go around faking that but that's not the danger the danger is that people pretend to know the outcome of fairly important and complicated cause and effect issues so you know in the states Whenever there's a shooting, which is pretty frequently, that makes the news, immediately people on all sides of the issue come out and say, if only we did this, if we had better, more mental health earlier, if we had different gun laws, da, 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 then all this would go away. They don't know that that's true, because those are hard questions to answer, and often we don't have the data to do it. So what you want to do is instead of rushing out to pontificate and pretend you know what would cause the problem, take a step back, say, you know, this is a bad thing that happened, or this is a bad problem that we have. How would we go about breaking the problem down, getting data to solve it? So that's, that's why saying I don't know is kind of the first step of thinking like a freak, but certainly not the last. There, um, you know, one thing that was really interesting, I have a little consulting firm that uh, we work with big, big corporations. And what always happens in firms when there's a problem is that a meeting is called, and the problem is discussed, and then you go around the room, and every person suggests what they think the answer to that problem would be. And then you more or less take some kind of weighted vote of the people in the room with the weight being heavily skewed to the more senior people, and then, and then a, a solution is sought. Okay? You, you, you follow that path. And so one thing we suggested, <coughs> which turned out to be fantastic, is when the problem was identified, we said, before you have the meeting, give us one week to actually look in the data. And so instead of coming to a meeting and the problem is there and you all give your solutions, we instead came to the meeting, the problem was announced, and then we showed simple data, 10, ten simple comparisons <coughs> that showed what was actually happening at the firm. And instead of everyone now knowing the answer, the whole debate turned to, well, that's interesting. I wonder why you know, this bar is four times as high as this bar. And how could we go and figure out that? And it, it changed the nature of the dialogue from one of, of assuming we all knew the answers. Actually, the more data you put in front of yourself, the more difficult it is to pretend you know the answers because you have to come up with real ex explanations for what you see. And I think we, it, it was a very transformational, for my own thinking about things, it gave me a whole new way of um, wanting to structure business decision making more generally. 
I guess also that really democratizes decision making because in your previous model, you basically everyone looks to the the fat guy in the room who's the boss and goes, okay, because he yeah. says something. But if you do it that way, then everyone else has an equal input and the junior person in the corner can say, well, how about this? Yeah, and, and uh, that describes exactly like our view of problem solving generally. Like the whole consensus model that Levitt was just describing has never been proved to be so fantastic. And if you look at you know, innovation, particularly in invention, the things that we most treasure throughout history, whether it's scientific invention or technological medical, Sometimes it's the result of a big team working together in a kind of corporate structure-like thing, but very, very rarely. So if you look at great medical breakthroughs, uh, technological, it's often kind of lone wolfy, you know? I mean, one example that's kind of a hybrid is polio vaccine. Polio vaccine was two guys working independently, coming up with similar but slightly different solutions, and they were funded by this big machine that started with Franklin Delano Roosevelt starting the March of Dimes. So it was the biggest ever publicly funded healthcare campaign. But even there, what they did was they raised the money and distributed it to people who could go off in their own silos and do it. And it's a little bit like um, you know, Google's 20% time, which has become quite famous. Engineers at Google are encouraged to, when they're hired, spend 20% of their time or one day a week on their own projects rather than on the group uh, project. And it turns out that, you know, that works pretty well. So rather than taking a hundred of your brightest people and saying, let's come together for an hour and come up with one or 10 ideas, let's take a hundred of our brightest people, send them all off in their own pods for an hour, get a hundred ideas, 80 of them will be crap, that's okay. Take the 20 that are better, 15 of them will be crap, it's okay. Then take the five and then you start to build it up from the consensus rather than shoving it from the top down. Mm -hmm. Um, relating, Paul, to your comment about, about the fat guy in the room who gets to make the decision, one of the most interesting things that has come out of the Freakonomics series for me is that before we wrote Freakonomics, most of the things I said and thought were pretty dumb. Okay? And that was still true today, that most of the things I say and do are pretty dumb. But because of Freakonomics, everyone always nods their head and acts like the things I say are so smart. And I sit with my team you know, of like undergrads who I work with who are really super smart, and they'll say to the client some brilliant idea, and because it's coming from a 24-year-old kid, they completely dismiss it. And I've learned to just wait 10 minutes and then to slightly rephrase it, and then the client says, oh my god, that's brilliant. And, uh, and I walk out of the room and I say to the 24-year-old, look, that was, your idea was brilliant. I don't, I, there's nothing we can do about the fact that the, the client is completely blind to good ideas and, and only, um, only um, you know, respects authority. But it's been a really, it's, it's been an, it's been an, it's really fun in some sense to, um, to, to be in a situation where no matter how dumb the things you say are, people think you're brilliant. And, um, but to know, but it's important to still know how dumb you are because it's actually fun to say dumb things and know they're dumb and have people nod and smile at you like you're brilliant. In other words, you're the fat guy yeah. in the room. You got to be know, the fat guy. But I know guy. I'm yeah, fat. Right. The fat guy usually doesn't know he's fat, but I still remember I'm fat. Is anyone else confused? <laughs> so we've got two things so far helping us to, to think like a freak. Admit you don't know and think like a child. What else can we learn? Um, maybe the next step or a next step would be um, make sure you're asking the right question or addressing the right problem or maybe redefining the problem. So look, you know, we don't tackle a lot of big, global, real, important problems in our book because those are really hard. And if we could solve 
income inequality and poverty and famine and energy, you know, we'd, we'd be off doing that. We don't have those skills. We do, however, talk about the, the way you need to walk up to those problems and, and try to solve them. And we observe that a lot of times the way that we approach them is often pretty counterproductive, which is to say that people attack the part of a problem that bothers them or it's the most visible. It's the one that gets a lot of media coverage, but it's not necessarily the underlying cause. And therefore, you don't necessarily ask the right question. Um, one story that we tell in the book that is a ridiculous story and disgusting to boot is about this um, competitive eater, Takeru Kobayashi, who's the most famous hot dog eating champion in the history of the world. And we discuss in great detail how he got so good. And the first time he ever went out <clears throat> and competed in a hot dog contest, the, uh, he went to the Nathan's famous 4th of July Coney Island hot dog contest in New York, which is like the Super Bowl of competitive eating. And the existing world record, the World Cup, yeah, if you will, and um, the existing world record was 25 and 1 eighth hot dogs and buns eaten in 12 minutes. So just imagine the mass and the disgust and so on. The first time he went out and competed, he ate 50. So we doubled the world record, okay? So no, nobody doubles any world record ever. So we set out to explore what, it, what was it about him that was so different? Was he just an anatomical freak? Or did he approach it in a way that allowed him to, you know, best everybody by so much? And the answers that we come up with and that we describe in the book have to do with him taking an entirely different approach to the problem, the problem such as it is of competitive eating, right? And basically what he observed was that all the other guys who were like twice his size, he's a very slim, slim guy, they basically looked at competitive eating as an extension of everyday eating. So they were a bunch of big guys who would kind of starve themselves for a few days and then get in there and just kind of gorge and gorge and gorge and gorge. And he thought, well, that may make sense, but maybe it makes better sense to think about competitive eating not as an extension of everyday eating, but as a different activity entirely, a different pursuit. So it'd be like the equivalent of, I want to run a marathon. Well, I know how to walk. I walk every day. I walk maybe five miles a day around the city. So it's just like that, but a little bit more. But anybody who's ever run a marathon knows that it's not like that at all. It's a totally different mental and physical and strategic set of principles that you need to do. And that's what Kobe did with hot dog eating. And so he did all these new moves. He would break the hot dog in half to make, give his jaw, you know, do, do work with his hands that he would have done with the jaw. He separated the dog and bun because it was easier to kind of slurp down the dog than take the bun and dip it in water and turn it into this kind of bun ball that he could then pop in and he could swallow that easier. Plus which, he was now getting water down his gullet without having to stop later to drink water like the other guys. It's so saving time over and over. And what he did is he redefined the problem he was trying to solve or asked a different question, which is unlike all the other guys who were asking, how can I you know, make my stomach accommodate more hot dogs? He said, how can I make a hot dog faster to eat? And therefore, you come up with a different set of ideas. Now, we acknowledge we're not big thinkers. That's not an important world record. But if you can, if somebody out there who's a bigger thinker than us can take those principles of asking a better question, redefining a problem, and apply it to something that's more important, then the rules of Takeru Kobayashi and thinking like a freak could be valuable. Yeah, a, a great example of, of thinking small 
which is, uh, I mean, so dumb to say we think small, but, but thinking small, I think, is a virtue in many, in many settings. A great example comes from some economists. The question of, of education and how to better do education is one of those fundamental questions that we face, especially in the United States. Our educational system our, at the younger levels struggles mightily, and, uh, but across the world. So these, and look, how many people devote their lives to trying to fundamentally transform education through curriculum, blah, blah, blah. So three economists made a really simple insight. They were in China, and they had kids in school, and they knew from having visited the classrooms of the kids that lots of kids wear glasses. And then they went to China, and they looked around the classrooms in China, in rural China, and none of the kids were wearing glasses. So it was possible one of two things was true. Maybe myopia was completely missing from these Chinese children, or maybe a bunch of the kids couldn't see and weren't having their sight fixed. So they gave the kids eye tests. It turns out there are a bunch of kids who couldn't see very well. So for maybe 5 or $10, they got cheap glasses. They gave these glasses to the Chinese kids. And the kids who hadn't been able to see and now got glasses ended up gaining like an extra year's worth of learning in the next year because now they could see. Okay? Totally simple insight. Thinking really small, it's not going to transform the entire educational system, but it made a material difference it's completely portable. You could imagine applying that across the entire world, and, and, it's, and it's a success. And our view is that a lot of people bang their heads against the wall trying to come up with huge uh, breakthrough major solutions to big problems when actually chipping away around the edges at a little piece of a big problem and making real progress can be much more productive use of time, it's, you know, especially for, for an individual. Well, you, you say that you don't look at big problems, but actually um, you look at one huge problem in the book, which is incredibly important to people in this country, which is um, why England don't score penalties. <laughs> and we're about to come up to a World Cup, and this problem is going to be enhanced and amplified, and it's going to cause us many months and hours and years of heartache because we're going to lose again to probably the Germans on penalties. <laughs> Every but day. Every day. Yeah, you, you actually are here the, with a solution. This your is very exciting. Your fear of the Germans is so interesting to we me. We love the Germans. We just don't like them in front of a penalty No, spot. you don't like them. You don't like the Germans. Um, but also your fear, like, it's so interesting because every World Cup, it's always a talk about the Germans. And you know, rightfully, they're, they're good. Really they're good. good. Absolutely. But, you know, Spain's pretty good. There's no fear in England of Spain. There's no fear in England of Brazil. It's the fear of Germany, in part because, as you said, the penalty kicks. So, yeah, so we, so we do. We open the book with this story about um, if you want to succeed at penalty kicks, the, strat the best strategy is simply this. Um, most kickers go either, they attempt to go either upper 90 left or upper 90 right or maybe low. Um, because it's almost unstoppable. unstoppable. Uh, therefore, most keepers will jump, will commit to jump left or right. Um, so if you look at the data, however, on ultimate success rate of kicks left and right, it turns out that kicking dead center is the most likely to lead to success. Okay. Now, if a lot of people did it, and the success rate rose, you can guess that keepers would start to stay home more often, right? So that would change. But then we asked the question of, well, why do so few people kick to the center when plainly, statistically, at least, it's the right thing to do? And we make the argument that it's because you look like a complete idiot if you go center and the keeper manages to stop it. You look like you were just not thinking or not trying or, or like I said, being an idiot, and you'll have to relocate your family to avoid assassination or, or something like that. So that's the, the, the football part of it. But I think the more metaphoric part of it is that that inability, or I shouldn't say inability, the desire to act out our um, 
to 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 elevate our personal desires or personal incentives versus the public is a real struggle, I think. So if you're a kicker and you want your team, your nation to win, you will go center. But the risk to you is pretty strong because if you miss, then it's you that gets the ridicule. If you go upper 90 left and the keeper manages to stop it, he was heroic, you were slightly less heroic. But if you fail personally, so I think it's that struggle between the personal incentive and the public incentive that is really the hard part that we all struggle with because we all want to get what we want and what our loved ones want but we don't necessarily want to penalize the rest and that's you know that's a little bit of what thinking like a freak is about is balancing the personal and, and public so you're basically saying that professional footballers are selfish and greedy yes <laughs> that's kind of what like I like all of us i mean you know it's funny because we we we've attacked attacked lots of different groups. So teachers, for instance, in, in Freakonomics, we show how these teachers in Chicago were cheating on exams. And so the teachers got very sensitive and they said, you're accusing us of being like lying, cheating, selfish people. And we said, yeah, you're people. And it's very natural for people when faced with strong incentives to respond to those strong incentives. And, um, and uh, I mean, and, and, there's, and it's silly. I mean, it's silly not to expect that people won't be people. I mean, we can try to, and politicians the same way. Of course, politicians have strong incentives, they respond to them. Estate agents have strong incentives, they respond to them. Economists have strong incentives, they respond to them. So journalists have strong incentives. So I think it's just one of the, one of the, the, the um, underpinnings of, of what we write about is always thinking about the incentives of, of the people that are either on your side or, or even more against you. What, what motivates them? Why are they doing what they're doing? And that can often lead you in the direction of knowing you know, how, to, how to beat them. Because this is one of the things I, th I thought was interesting is that you can relay your kind of teachings, if you will, in a personal level or in a business level. So it kind of works however you want to kind of yeah, think about it. Yeah, I, I think... Um Honestly, I think a lot in this book and Think Like a Freak is probably more practical on an individual basis. And the reason is you have a lot more control over changing the way you think and behave as an individual because when, you, when you're part of an institution, you know, the pressures there and the incentives there are, are constraining. So, you know, like we advocate thinking like a child. One part of it, as we said, is like, coming up with ridiculous, outlandish, but potentially valuable um, ideas or questions, right? So you know the kind of questions kids come up with, and most of them are not good, but once in a while there's something that's really outlandish and good, but have you guys ever been in a meeting where the boss will say, okay, listen, we really need something new now, and there's no such thing as a stupid idea, right? And the boss says that, and, you say, and you've had this idea that you've been scared to float for a long time. And you say, well, he just went and said there's no such thing. So, so, I'm so you raise your hand, and then you blurt out your idea. And then the boss says, oh, I guess there is such thing as a stupid idea. And that was it. And you're forever dis discouraged from ever doing that again. So it, to reform institutions that have those dead set incentives is really hard. Politics, I think, the very hardest. I don't even blame politicians so much. The incentives that we give them are what they respond to. We give them short-term self-interested incentives to get elected, raise money, especially in the states. 
retain power, to get reelected, and so on, whereas most of what we actually want them to do are kind of long-term projects that they're not even really, they don't really have any skin in the game. So it doesn't surprise me that they respond as they do, saddens me, but I think part of the onus is on us for having a system that doesn't reward them for the right things. I think we should remunerate them, you know, we talked about some kind of vesting uh, uh, remuneration plan where politicians could get paid a big chunk of money 10 or 20 years down the road if their projects actually turn out well to lift education or improve transportation or whatnot. And I've talked about this with a lot of US politicians. I, I once had this conversation with John McCain, Senator John McCain, who lost the uh, presidential election to Obama. And uh, I was telling him this nutty idea, you know, maybe you pay politicians less, maybe you pay them more, but in any case, you give them a chance to really make a lot of money if they do really great work, just like anyone in business or media, whatever. And he was listening and saying, yeah, Steve, tell me more, tell me more. I, Gave him the whole spiel. Then at the end of it, he says, yeah, I really like that idea, and good luck to hell with that. Because there's just no way that any politician in his right mind would kind of, you know, the way things are set up, go for that kind of reform because it makes them look like selfish, greedy bastards that um, they can't afford to be. So that's kind of weird, isn't it? Because no one goes into politics to make a lot of money because you can make bigger money elsewhere. So they must have some kind of... Um, benevolent bone in their body when they go in but as soon as they put the suit on they turn into what you just said and they, then they won't kind of <laughs> yeah, I'm not, yeah I don't know about benevolent I mean the politicians I've known have tended to be uh, inc incredibly egotistical people who love attention and you know and sometimes they feel I like they being can nice. yeah but, um, but we can't be nice. We've got to be truthful here. That's all part of the game uh, of how we, how we talk about the world. And, and I don't think they change. I think, I mean, the politicians I've known haven't changed at all. That the, 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 the I mean, it's the fact that, especially in the U.S., getting elected in the U.S. has become so difficult. You have to, you have to raise so much money which is incredibly unpleasant for most people to have to hold fundraiser after fundraiser and to go and, and seek out special interests to get money. And, um, and also, there's often so much negativity and perusal of your private life and embarrassment of anything you've ever done wrong that in order to want to hold office, you have to be a very extreme kind of character. And so there's a, you know, of all the people in the United States, the set, the set of people who have not done something crazy enough that they could never be elected crossed with having done something good enough that somebody might want to vote for them crossed with being egotistical is a really small pool of people and when you draw from that pool you know it's it's not at all surprising that that the kind of people you get are the are, are um the, the the folks we've elected now we're going to open it up to the floor shortly so start thinking about your questions um but i wanted to touch on um lastly one element of the book that i found really interesting um and I was just about to stop reading the book and leave it halfway through. Uh, but then I found out about the power of quitting. Um, and I thought this was really interesting. So tell us a little bit about that. But also this idea of a premortorium. Or a premortem pre even. I can't even read my own writing. Um, I thought that was really exciting. So tell us a little bit about that, if you will. Which do you want? Me? Quitting? Quitting? Uh, let's start with the premortem because this is kind of part of quitting. So... We basically argued that quitting is underappreciated, that um, thanks to people like um, your uh, wonderful past Prime Minister Winston Churchill, who, who told us, or told the schoolboys at Harrow to never, 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 never give up in anything larger, small, great, or petty, uh, which made sense. It was World War II, and Nazi Germany was bombing the crap out of you. And um, 
so it makes sense often to fight maybe to the death even. But for most of us, the stakes are not so high. And for most of us, we're engaged in activities, whether it's a job or a project or a relationship, where quitting may be a fantastic option, but because we've been so conditioned that, that quitting is a moral failure that we won't even entertain it. So we argue that um, people should look at quitting differently and be more willing to quit. And that failure, which may be or may not be part of quitting, is uh, we look at it wrong too, that we, we have this fear of failure and really we should embrace good, fast, productive failure. And to that end, the pre-mortem is this idea that I mean, I remember when I first heard about it, I couldn't believe it wasn't world famous. Um, and it's not. Nobody knows about it still. So we, we write just a couple paragraphs in the book, so you, you may read that, but I'll just tell you what we say there. Premortem is this idea of this one guy named Gary Klein, who's a psychologist who works with, in kind of a management consulting capacity with a bunch of firms. And he found that what happens is that in a lot of businesses, or it, or it could be government, once you have a project going, um, and there's a lot of momentum, and you've kind of decided that you're going to do it, and it's funded, then the project tends to get what they call in uh, aerospace, particularly, they call it go fever. So the boss is like ready to go, let's push the button, let's launch this sucker, right? And there becomes such a kind of momentum and a confidence that it's almost impossible to introduce doubts that maybe could save you a lot of trouble. To, so what Gary Klein said of, what if instead of conducting a post-mortem, after we do this thing and it fails, what if we could do a pre-mortem? Which is to say, we've got this project we're about to launch and we hope it succeeds, but in order to ensure its best chances, why don't we sit down for an hour and everybody around the room envision that we're six months down the road and it failed, that this project failed miserably. Then he'll say to each person, now I want you to envision it having failed. So it failed so badly that when you pass your other team members here in the hallway later, six months from now, you can't even look at each other. It will be such a brutal, bitter failure. And now he says, I want you to think of and write down what led to the failure. Simple as that. And it's basically giving everyone in the room permission to voice what they think would be the failure without having to gone to the trouble of actually failing. And if then in the next hour, people write down, or the next five minutes, if people write down their answers, and if there's a lot of unanimity, like the boss doesn't know what he or she is doing, or we're woefully underfunded, or there's another team on another division that is doing exactly the same project, and one of us is gonna die, then you know that you have a good chance to fail well now before you would have gone and failed publicly. So I think that's the pre-mortem, and I think you can use a pre-mortem in almost any circumstance. It doesn't have to be some corporate plan. It can be in your own thing where you say, this is this thing I've decided I'm going to do. Rather than wait until I blow it, let me see how I might have blown it, and then adjust it so that maybe I can succeed. I thought that was great. Um, so. We're going to open up for questions. I know on the website you have blogs, you have um, uh, radio shows and all this kind of stuff, and you get asked lots of questions and you get asked lots of things to look at and kind of ideas to tackle. So just before, just I'm trying to help you out here, just before we open it up to everyone, what's the dumbest question you've ever been asked? What's the one thing that you think, that's such a, that problem just doesn't exist, why are you even asking us to fix it? Or is there no such thing as a stupid question? No, uh, no, maybe for no. us, who's not. No, I bet there are. I bet there are. We got. 
I can give you one of the dumbest answers we've gotten to a question we asked. Bacon? It was just yesterday. Was bacon? No, oh. yesterday. So um, I won't say where we were or what we were doing, but we were with people who were supposed to be intelligent. And uh, we were watching TV um, with these intelligent people. And uh, a segment came on in driverless cars. And they asked us our opinion on driverless cars. And they said, and, and, and so Stephen always tries to make the point. We, we, we pretty much love driverless cars. And make the point about how many lives will be saved. Because it, and, oh. and, and the question, so <laughs> Stephen said, how many, people, yeah. how many people do you think die in crashes, fatal uh, uh, automobile crashes each year in the world? Let's add, we yes, should, what uh, do you think? This, uh, people won't be able to hear at home, but we'll we'll, we'll repeat your answers. Three people raise their hand. We'll go one after yeah. the other. How many people do you think die uh, around the world as a result of automobile crashes? We're not going to make fun of you, believe yeah, me. Yeah, we promise we won't make fun of you. Here's yeah. one. 100,000. 100, okay, who else has a guess? You two have been very animated here. Yeah. You got a guess? Yeah. yeah. A million. A million. Uh-huh. Woo. Okay. 50,000. Okay. So a million is almost exactly right. Yeah. Great guess. Okay. But those weren't so bad. Yeah. Sorry. So the woman who looks at us and a supposedly a very educated person says, I would guess about a billion a year die in <laughs> automobile crashes. So you don't have to know a lot about the, the earth, but there are only about seven billion of us. So that means unless we are producing... But what I loved about, what I loved about Dubner is that she said a billion... And I looked at him, and I had no idea what he was going to say. And he said, yeah, a million, a million. And then he kept on going as if she hadn't just said literally the dumbest answer ever uttered in history. So there you go. You're not going to be as dumb as that. Um, we have some microphones um, floating around the place. So um, stick your hands up. There's a gentleman in the back who was right on it. I forgot all about that. Hey. So. Um, you guys talked about the 20% rule that um, Google does, and I'm just curious in your own lives, what is, is your um, Freakonomics platform your 20%, or you also mentioned that you have a consultancy firm, like, what, what is that 20% like is in your own lives, and how do you kind of divide that up, or is this kind of what you do every day, or just curious? Yeah, that's a great question. I, so for me, I would say that the, one of the great virtues of our, our luck and success with Freakonomics is we have so many opportunities to do so many great things that essentially we, we're, we're kind of liberated from the drudgery that runs most people's lives and, and we pick and choose. And so, so pretty much other than right now we're on this horrendous book tour, which I never would agree to uh, if I were not compelled with a gun to my head. But other than that, I pretty much... Uh, only do the things that I enjoy, and so um, you know. So the writing of the books is really fun, and uh, I I still do my academic research, but I only do stu I only do studies now that I'm really interested and really excited about. Was the book Was the book uh, a twenty percent project before you had written the book? Um, it's like my whole life is twenty percent now. I mean, I, I mean, I, no, like, before you're asking what like the first book, oh, the for first instance, one? yeah, that's a good yeah. Oh no, no, the no. It's like a four percent project. No, no. The book, the first book, had exactly one motivation, which is that you know the backstory is that Dubner and I met, didn't really like each other. He interviewed me. We left on pretty poor terms, but he wrote an amazing piece that glamorized me as the you know the Superman of smart 
problem-solving stuff, which was totally false, but an incredibly valuable reputation that I've been, I've been milking for all I can ever since then. And part of the value of that was that the publishers came and wanted us to write a book. And so, you know, we didn't even like each other, but we got to talking about, well, okay, so, um, you know, what would it take to write a book? And I didn't want to write a book. He didn't want to write a book. But we both agreed that, you know, journalists and economists, if you give us enough money, we'll do anything, okay? And it was just a matter of getting enough money. So, honestly, the first book came about only because we got paid a ton of money to do it. And we had no expectations that anyone would read it. We didn't think it would be fun. It was pure prostitution. And uh, it turns out sometimes prostitution has, uh, has an upside. And it worked, out. it worked out in ways we never, ever imagined that it would have worked out. That's not the way I would have answered that question, uh. just for the record. <laughs> We've had some strange questions up here, and that's one of the strangest answers. Okay, let's have a couple more. There's a gentleman at the back over there. Uh, great performance. Does anybody have a solution to the Fukushima nuclear power station that's blown up? Yeah, well, um, I don't know if I can answer that per se, but we've written about nuclear power a good bit. I don't know if we ever included it in a book. We wrote a New York Times column and did maybe some radio and uh, blogging about it. So I think nuclear power is wildly misunderstood. Um, so, you know, the, 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 the solution to Fukushima... Uh, which in retrospect is obvious, is don't build a nuclear power plant where you might get hit by a tsunami, okay? And no one knowing, no one now would ever put that plant there. So that said, the damage, which has been substantial, um, is nowhere near as bad as it could have been, but the solution is to build a better, so, you know, we're also talking about three generations ago of nuclear power plant design. But that leads to the bigger problem, which is that Nuclear power, when it was discovered, you have to remember or you have to realize, was considered a, almost a miracle, especially because of its origin. It was a byproduct of a nuclear bomb, which were meant to be purely destructive. And this byproduct was supposed to be energy that was literally, the phrase at the time was, too cheap to meter. Nuclear energy was going to be so cheap that you wouldn't even need to charge for it, right? So that was the idea. That turned out not to be true because the plants are more expensive to build and so on. But America started to build many. We built over 100 nuclear power reactors or plants. I can't remember the number now. And, um, and they were doing pretty well. But then there started to be a push against them because of the implied danger. Um, and the implied danger seemed very great. The actual danger was more in question. There, there wasn't a lot of data to go on of how dangerous they were. But there was a lot of fear and therefore a lot of kind of protest against them. And then um, a movie came out called The China Syndrome, which was a very scary movie having to do with the meltdown of a big California nuclear power plant. And then 12 days after the movie, uh, there was a real accident in a real power plant in Pennsylvania called Three Mile Island. Now, this turned out to be a relatively minor it was a meltdown, a reactor melted down, which was terrible, but there were no fatalities and there actually wasn't much radiation escaped and so on. But the combination of the scary movie coming out and, and the, the, the accident shortly thereafter totally um, petrified an entire country and never built another nuclear reactor after that. Meanwhile, we exported our technology to other countries, France and elsewhere, Japan and so on. But because of that fear, 
uh, we stopped moving forward to what would have been now third and fourth and fifth generation nuclear reactors, which are being built in some places in smaller versions and so on. But the bigger point of all that blather was this. We thought we were doing the right thing by responding to a fear, which was the fear of a nuclear meltdown at a power plant. And indeed, Chernobyl was a bad accident. Uh, hopefully nothing like that will ever happen again. The circumstances under which it happened are hard to believe it would happen that badly again. But the bigger point is this. We substituted an implied fear that nuclear power was terrible for the status quo, which was burning coal. So we went on to burn many, 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 many more tons of coal than we would have before. And coal is demonstrably bad and dangerous and dirty and polluting and so on. So if you tally up all the deaths from nuclear power over the history of humankind, I don't think they would equal one year's worth of death from just coal mining in China. So that's the kind of trade-offs we have when we don't like to look at data or get scared by things that may be frightening, but perhaps not as frightening as they ought to be. Um, we're going to have two very quick, possibly even one very quick we, question now. We need a question from these two because they've been itching. Go ahead. So um, you've made it quite clear that experts predicting the future um, are really bad at it, and yet the media, presumably to feed a, a public want, still put experts predicting the future, however bad they are. Have you found a solution to making the public want uh. the truth rather than uh, loudmouths making world predictions? So that, that's a great question. I mean, in some domains, the experts try really hard to give you the truth. Like the weather is a good example, right? Because the weather is perfectly verifiable the next day. And so if the weatherman repeatedly says it's going to be sunny and every day it rains, you stop watching that weatherman or they get fired. So, um, so one great way of, of getting experts to tell the truth is to find, to, to, to make sure that their predictions are verifiable. And so um, I think it would be a great service to society if there were... Um, there were you know, people or, or, or government task forces that were devoted to actually looking at the predictions and publicizing the false predictions that were made in, in the past. So, right, the thing is, if I make a wild prediction, if I say in front of you today, I believe that the, uh, the, the FTSE is going to crash by 30% within this week. Okay? If it happens, I will talk about that. Every speech I ever make will, will talk about the time I predicted that. And I have private incentives to do that. But if it doesn't happen, there's nobody else out there. Right? Dubner's not going to start his speeches by saying, well, Levitt once predicted that and it didn't happen. Nobody cares. And so um, I think there's a real asymmetry there. So um, you just, Can I just say for the record, you just advocated the establishment of a government task force? I, to it doesn't have to be government. It'd be better if someone else did. There is but Pundit Tracker. Have you ever seen Pundit Tracker? Uh, so you should look it up. It's primordial, but it's it's what mm. Levitt's describing, mm. which is a bunch of guys keeping track of Pundit's predictions, yeah. and it's it's small. It's like yeah. they have Paul Krugman being I can't remember either perfectly bad or perfectly terrible, but it was based on one prediction. So you know Krugman makes a lot. It'd be good, but yeah, it's that's what I have a my so I have in my family an example of one way to think about it, which is that, yeah, like Levitt says, bad predictions don't get penalized, which is part of the problem. But uh, I don't know if this 
this story made the news over here, but about uh, two summers ago, two Mays ago, there was this uh, preacher in the U.S. named Harold Camping who predicted the end of the world. I don't know if you heard about this. So he basically said, um, you know, we've been living this life that is leading to despoilment of the planet. And the planet, it's going to be the apocalypse. And the only people who, won't, who will be spared are the people who follow my religious teachings. And, you know, to me, you know, most of us probably would hear something like this and not really think about it much at all. But, you know, like you're saying, an authority figure gets on TV and my son, who was like 10 at the time, he saw this guy in a suit saying that the world was going to end and he got really, really scared, my son. And um, so, he's, you know, he came to me and I said, I, I was so bad at the. Uh, I said... I remember the line, I said, no credible people treat this scare with any legitimacy. As It sounded like a government statement, like I was covering up something. And then he said... Have you um, spoken to a child before? Yeah, no. <laughs> and, then, um, and then he said, uh, no offense, Dad, but could you ask someone smarter than you about the possibility of the world ending? So I wrote to this guy that we know that we've written about, a guy named Nathan Mirvold, who's a very smart guy in a number of ways, including he's an astrophysicist. And Nathan took time out to write my son, Solomon, uh, a really nice long email saying why it just wasn't going to happen. But my son was still really distraught. And in like the two or three days leading up to the day when the world was supposed to end, because there was a date, my son was like, it was horrible. He was like crying himself to sleep at night. And I felt, as a parent, I felt terrible. You want to protect your kids from real fears, but so it's even worse for him to be so scared of something that I didn't think even legitimate. And then the next morning, the day that the world was supposed to end, we woke up in New York, where we live, and uh, it was this beautiful spring day, and um, we, I, I'm up early, Salman comes out for breakfast, and he says hello, da da da, and I said, hey, you know, cool, we're still here, and with the false bravado of a 10-year-old says, ah, oh, uh, you know, I was never really worried about it, which was totally not true, and I said to him, well, you know, Salman, what what do you think should be done um, about this guy who went around all over saying that the world was going to end, you know? And my son, who's a very peaceful, compassionate, loving little guy, he says, oh, that's easy. They should take him outside and shoot him. <laughs> so it'd only take one instance of that. I'm not advocating, but once would probably uh, ward off a lot of the future bad predictions. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's a good place to end it, but end it we will do. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, he did, yeah, he did die. Yeah. Not as a result of the sun taking him. Um, so please join me in saying thank you very much uh, for a very interesting hour-long uh, discussion. Thank you. Um, they will be sticking around, so if you didn't get your question asked, um, maybe you can ask it later. But thank you very much indeed for coming.